0: Limitless was created in order to inform, educate, entertain, and share stories from within the blind and partially sighted community, in order to show the world that the opportunities for those who are blind or partially sighted are truly limitless. And now, it is my pleasure to introduce you to your host, the Executive Director and Founder of Blind Beginnings, Sean Marcelet. Welcome back to Limitless, the Blind Beginnings Podcast. I'm your
1: host, Sean Marsolet, and I'm so happy that you have joined us again this week. We have another fantastic episode. Today we're talking about accessible transit because in Metro Vancouver, there's been an introduction of some new braille tactile signage, which is very exciting. So we're going to get into that in a moment and we do have an amazing guest with us but before I introduce our guest I want to welcome Jenny back to the podcast welcome Jenny hi Sean how are you doing today I'm good how are you I'm pretty good.
2: Um, would you consider yourself uh, an active transit user? Well, I would definitely consider myself an active transit user more than I used to be. Um, but where I live, transit is not the same as in um larger cities, but I've definitely pretty pretty good, I'd say, transit user.
1: Cool. Awesome. Without further ado then, I want to introduce our guest today. Uh, We have Rob Sleeth with us. Rob is the chair of ASIC, which is Access for Sight-Impaired Consumers. He's a longtime member of the User Advisory Committee for TransLink. He's also my partner in delivering some blindness awareness presentations to Coast Mountain Bus Company. So we work with new drivers uh, about some of the issues that they need to know when dealing with customers who are blind or partially sighted. So um, welcome, Rob.
3: Good afternoon, Sean. Thank you so much for having me this afternoon. It's really a pleasure to join you.
1: Well, thank you. I'm excited that you're here. Uh, Rob, before we get into accessible transit, can you share a little bit about your blindness
3: journey? Sure, happy to do that. Um, I experienced a total sight loss back in 1992 the um, start of that was in October of 1991 and over about an eight or nine month period my sight deteriorated to the point where I have a total sight loss at the present time, one of the things that um, I. I know a lot of people might look at me and say well Rob you're you have a disability because of your blindness but I would argue that it's not my sight loss although that's the root of my disability that's not really the cause of my disability Um, I'm a firm believer that it's the environment we live in that really contributes to our disability And it's for that reason that I got involved with an organization called uh, Access for Sight-Impaired Consumers and why I'm so passionate about working with TransLink on making the public transit system more accessible, because I believe if we can make it fully accessible to people with disabilities, then we eliminate the disability to a large degree.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I I often say it's it isn't like not being able to see isn't really the hard part about being blind it's the barriers that you face regularly that kind of you know if the world was was built for people who were blind then we wouldn't really even notice that we had a disability right exactly yeah exactly
3: Yeah.
2: yeah i definitely agree with that and i want to also know more about this um training that you do um as another way of eliminating um the barriers that transit users um face um so i was wondering if sean and yourself rob would tell me a bit more about that what do you do what does it look like
3: well yeah let me let me maybe kick off on that in i like i say i lost my vision in 1992 and i was approached by a a a woman who became a very dear friend of ours Um, who was doing some um, what I call disability awareness training with um, BC Transit back in those days. And she asked me if I would join her and come and speak with the transit operators um, and give them some insight as to what it was like to ride on the transit system with a total sight loss. Um, Peggy, uh, the, the woman that asked me to join her, She was partially sighted, so she had a slightly different perspective on it. And the two of us would go to um, the Oak Ridge Transit Center and speak to transit operators, usually once, twice a month. Um, When Peggy chose to step back, um, that's when I had come to know Sean and I felt Sean would be a really good fit in terms of working um, on this project and Sean, I'm I'm trying to think now. it's been, gosh, close to 20 years, 20 years. years? Yes. 2002
1: is when I started.
3: Oh, Oh. there you go. Yeah.
1: I don't know how you thought. So it's funny because I (laughs) I joined the ASIC board and I'd been to a couple of meetings and then Rob called me up and propositioned me, so to speak (laughs) with this bus driver gig. (laughs) And I remember meeting with you. We went for coffee one day and you, you sort of, you know, asked if I would be interested in this and I was unemployed at the time. I was looking for work. I was volunteering a lot. And it was just like this part-time little paying gig that, but I, I don't know why you thought, you know, I, you hardly knew me. So I really appreciate that you gave me that opportunity. Cause it's, it's been fantastic and I'm still there.
3: Well, I like to think, Sean that I'm a good judge of character and and to be honest with you how long have we been together now 18 20 years um, I would say that it worked out very very well
1: Mm -hmm. yeah funny over the 20 years we've certainly um, supported each other through different things I went off to have a baby and Rob kind of carried the presentation and he's had to step away for reasons here and there and I've carried us so it's yeah we're a good team I think
3: it's been a great partnership. Yes.
1: So how did the training, like, how did you guys come up with or who, like, how did that start? Cause I wasn't really, and maybe we can talk about what the training looks like. Cause I think it's pretty interesting was, what we yeah, put the drivers gonna, through.
2: I was going to ask, like, do you guys just um, speak to them? Do you do some, like, like, I want to know the the process of that as well.
3: Yeah. You know, that's a great question, Ginny, And I'm, I'm thinking back to, <clears throat> when Peggy and I were doing it. Um, Peggy actually worked with a, a gal who, I think she's passed away now, I'm not sure, but uh, Lori Fontaine and Peggy started doing these presentations uh, with BC Transit. And in actual fact, they went into the training classroom and spoke to veteran drivers who were coming back in after three to five years of service on the road. The drivers used to call it charm school because they didn't like it at all. But um, I, I remember when I got involved and we would go around the room and ask the drivers to introduce themselves, how long have they been driving for transit and so on and so forth. And in some cases, it was really discouraging because some of these guys would sit in the back of the room and they'd read the province newspaper, wouldn't listen to a word we said. And when we asked them, well, you know, if you had passengers on your bus who were blind or partially sighted before, they would all go, oh, yeah, I know everything about being blind and how Mm -hmm. to help patent. And I think, oh, my gosh. So what Peggy and I did is we proposed to Ron Williams, who was the chief instructor at the time, that we really wanted access to the new transit operator trainees, Um, the guys that were just learning and starting out on their careers. And we went a step further and said, what we'd like to do is put them through a, uh, a simulation of what it's like to ride on a public transit bus when First of all, the driver's not calling the stops, or the driver doesn't know how to give us verbal instruction, or they don't understand the first thing about blindness, et cetera, et cetera. And so, over the years, and Sean, I think that's about when you joined us, we were actually taking the drivers out for um, a simulation of what it was like to ride on a bus um, with a total sight loss. Yeah. Am I correct mm-hmm. on
1: that? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. We've been going out on the bus all along. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And so um, what we did is Sean and I sat down and we developed a, almost a script of the key points that we wanted to talk about. And the main purpose of the simulation was for them to experience what it's like to, dry, uh, to ride on that bus when they really had no idea based on their temporary sight loss, we would blindfold them. And mm-hmm. um, we'd start by asking them to board the bus with their blindfolds on, and that was a, a real experience. Um, to find a seat entirely on your own. The, the transit operator uh, is not gonna give you any instruction whatsoever on where to find a seat. Um, and that was always kind of amusing because they would end up touching each other, sitting in each other's laps, um, We understand a couple of, uh, um, a couple of them would arrange dates for Friday, just kidding, (laughs) (laughs) but it was, it, it was an interesting experience. And then of course we'd take them for a short trip around the city and we would stop at certain locations and we would ask them, tell us what bus stop you're at. And that was quite interesting too, because they really didn't have a clue. Um, But that gave them some real insight as to what it was like for us to ride on the bus when the driver's not calling out the stops. And, of course, this was all um, pre-automated stop announcement days. So back then, we used to have to ask the driver when we got on board to let us off at whatever our location was or our destination. Um, And a lot of them picked up on it. They got the idea that it's really important to call stops, that kind of thing. Sean, what were some of the other things we covered um
1: well we talk about things like how to give verbal direction if you're you know if somebody asks you how to find the bus stop across the street or kind of to point out anything that's out of the ordinary like that the bus is not lined up with the curb or not lined up with the id pole or there's construction on the sidewalk or the bus stop's been temporarily relocated Um, We also explain, you know, just some of the little things about visual impairment, like the definition of legal blindness and the varied kind of range of vision that people might have, and that some people who are partially sighted don't have, don't use a white cane or a guide dog. So they don't, you wouldn't know by looking at them that they have a visual impairment. So I think that's an important piece of what we teach as well.
3: And Sean, if I may, um, you've reminded me, you do an excellent job of explaining how important it is at a multi stop bus stop. In other words, a a bus stop that's serviced by um, three or four different routes of how difficult it is for a person who's blind, partially or partially sighted to recognize that there's a second bus or even a third Mm -hmm. bus in line. And we try to stress to the drivers, it's really important to comply with company policy and wait till that first bus pulls away. And if you're the second bus in line to come up to the ID poll, because that's usually where a person who's blind or partially sighted is going to be standing. The other Mm -hmm. thing you talk about that I really like, Sean, is um, uh, use of language. And addressing somebody who's blind or partially sighted with visual language. Maybe you wanna kind yeah, of expand on that?
1: Just that it's so you know, it's okay to use words like look and see when you're talking to somebody who's blind. Um, we use the same language that anyone else does and and we're comfortable with that language. I think a lot of people are really they try not to, they try not to use the visual language, mm-hmm. and that really just tips us off that they're a little bit uncomfortable around somebody who's blind so they're kind of giving themselves away so i let them know that that they can just relax and speak the way they would to anybody um i just wanted to say because i know that blindfold simulations are can be a little bit controversial um that i also always make a point when they take their blindfolds off so about halfway through they get to take their blindfold off and um And we, you know, we ask them what that experience is like boarding the bus without their blind, without their vision, sorry. (laughs) Uh, And it's usually a range of negative emotions. Some people occasionally will say it was fun. Uh, but I always let them know that that's not putting a blindfold on for 10 minutes is not the same as being blind and that they don't have any of the tools that we do to navigate the world without our vision. They haven't received any training. So we always make sure to point that out. Cause we don't want anyone to leave thinking that that's what blindness is like. Cause obviously it's not so. Mm-hmm so i mean over the years we've had to adjust our presentation as the city became more and more accessible like when they introduced the audible announcements on the bus which okay. if you if for our listeners that don't live in metro vancouver uh, all of our buses announce the stops as we approach them which is fantastic um and now with this latest new tactile Braille signage, um, that's also going to help with another challenge that I know I personally have faced a lot, which is sometimes finding a bus stop when I'm walking along a sidewalk, especially if it's a crowded sidewalk with lots of poles. We, We talk about how a no parking sign or a stop sign pool feels the same as a bus stop pool. So sometimes being able to identify the bus stop. So Rob, how did this come to be? This when did this project start, and what what's been involved in making
3: this happen? Oh my gosh, you're taking me back decades, literally, <laughs> um, and I'm not I'm not exaggerating. Um, this this seed was planted back in May of 1998. Oh, wow. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and I had joined a pan disabilities access committee that were serving as the disability consultants of record for BC transit. And it's, it's kind of a humorous story. If I may, Sean, um, I was sitting in probably my second, or I think it was my third meeting and there were about 12, uh, 12 consumers in the room and probably half a dozen management. And they were all sitting there talking about accessible bus stops now understand that most of the people in the room were sitting in uh, a mobility device of some sort, either a wheelchair, a scooter. There were a couple of people there with walkers and they're all engaged in this conversation about we need more accessible bus stops. And so finally I mustered up the courage in my third meeting, I put my hand up and I said, excuse me, what do you folks mean by an accessible bus stop? Well, I knew full well what they were talking about. They were talking about a bus stop with a concrete pad large enough to deploy the lift on the high floor coaches back in those days and how people in mobility aids wanted more accessible stops so they could use the public transit system. Well, everybody turned and looked at me and I'm sure they were all thinking, where did this guy come from? Like, how could he not know what an accessible stop is? But I raised the question, what about an accessible stop for those of us with sensory disabilities? In other words, how does a person who's blind, partially sighted or deaf blind find a bus stop in Metro Vancouver? And that was the genesis or the start of the whole university accessible bus stop project. Now, recognize that was pre-TransLink days because TransLink didn't commence until April 1999, but we carried it forward. Um, I continued with this group until um, the access transit strategy was created, and I'll get into that in a few minutes. Um, but I continued to push it over the last 20, 23 years because one of the first uh, environmental issues I encountered when I started my mobility instruction is I asked my OM instructor, how do I find the bus stop down in Richmond Center? And I can still hear his voice. He very apologetically explained to me well, I don't really have an answer for you. Um, I guess you just have to ask people. Well, I'm too independent to do that. <clears throat> I don't mind asking for help occasionally, but um, I don't want to ask people where is the closest bus stop because in many cases, the individual is not giving you the right information or they don't clearly understand what bus stop you're looking for, et cetera, et cetera. So I came up with this idea about making bus stops universally accessible to people who are blind partially sighted or deafblind. And to me there are two main factors involved, um, although there is a third component here. Um, and the first was to be able to identify that metal pole as a bus stop ID pole. Um, as Sean said a moment ago, the difference between a no parking sign or a stop sign pole is there isn't any. It's identical to a bus stop ID pole. So, we came up with the idea of a what I call dual format, color contrasted sign that provides um, tactile lettering for those who are not braille literate, um, braille for those who are and high color contrasting for those who are partially sighted and can maybe read the sign provided um, its white lettering on a dark blue background. And so after several years of advocating down this path um, in December 2019, the TransLink board approved the budget to install these dual format Braille signs on all 8,400 bus stops in the Metro Vancouver uh, region.
2: Wow, that's that's quite a. I just find that so interesting that such a project and and like has has taken so long and now is finally coming through to fruition. It's just it's really fascinating to see.
3: Well, there's a couple of reasons it took so long. Is first of all the transition from BC Transit to TransLink um, was quite disruptive in the process. Of course, there's new management, um, new managers are coming and going. The project got passed from desk to desk to desk. And it wasn't until, um, uh, one of the engineers at TransLink back in about 2011, really picked up on this project and committed to doing a pilot. Um, And that's when this project really got some legs and started to move forward.
1: So 8,400 bus stops. How long is that gonna take before they're all kind of installed?
3: Hopefully not 23 years. (laughs) (laughs) No, on uh, December 16th, like just a little over a month ago, um, TransLink held a media event downtown Uh, they announced the fact that these Braille signs would be installed on all 8400 bus stops and it would be done um, by the close of 2022. So I am fairly confident in saying over the next, uh, what are we now, Um, the next 11 months, all 8400 bus stops will be outfitted with these Braille uh, and dual format signs. Now, if I may, That's really only one half of the idea or the um, ability for people with sight loss to identify a bus stop. What it really means, if they only put up the Braille signs, is we would have to walk down the street and um, touch every pole that we come across to see, is this the one with the Braille sign on it? And it's not a very efficient or dignified way of of allowing us to travel on the public transit system. So the other um, portion of making these bus stops universally accessible to those bus with sight loss is to put down what's called a tactile walking surface indicator, often referred to as TWSIs, or as some of the lazy people call them, they call them Twizzies. Um, I hate that term, but that's fine. Um, And to describe what the TWSI would be like is most of your uh, Metro Vancouver residents will be familiar with the bright yellow truncated domes that um, are on the edge of all the SkyTrain and Canada Line platforms. Um, That tactile warning surface indicator in this case, not walking, it's a warning surface indicator is clearly um, there for the benefit of people who are blind or partially sighted, although it does benefit others, sighted people, parents with young children and seniors, et cetera. Um, but it would be material similar to that that would stretch from the base of the bus stop ID pole, Across the path of travel. So, to try and verbalize what I mean here is if you were walking down the street and your cane or you could feel it through your footwear um, came in contact with this TWSI, then you would turn to the left or turn to the right, obviously in the direction of um, the traffic, and it would lead you right up to the ID pole that had the dual format tactile sign on it. So that way we don't have to go down the street touching every pole, we just continue Mm -hmm. on our path of travel and eventually this TWSI will come in in contact with it because it will be um, spread across our path of travel right to hopefully the edge of the sidewalk.
1: I'm so excited for that because I'm thinking of um, there has been a temporary bus stop situation on my commute to the office, which I'm only going in like one day a week, but so not enough to really get familiar with it. But as I walk along that sidewalk, if i go to the curb edge to find the pole i'm met with uh, a couple of trees in my path <laughs> and you know inevitably <laughs> yeah. i gen- i get i get a tree branch in the face because i'm not quite at the right point so just to be able to walk down the sidewalk and feel that under my feet and know oh uh, here i am i'm at the bus stop that that's going to be
3: great
2: yeah. i agree
3: yes now there is one other component and i I and my team actually fought against this for many, many years. But if you think back to 1998 or the early 2000s, the iPhone didn't even exist. And the whole idea of smartphones didn't exist. While we were lobbying for these braille signs and the TWSIs, TransLink was constantly pushing back, saying, well, we want to put uh beacons um or gps um uh signaling devices on the top of all id poles and i said you know that's a lovely idea but let's keep in mind back in 2008 2009 that that era um not everybody who was blind or partially sighted had a smartphone could afford a smartphone And even if they did, they may not be able to afford the data plan um, to work in concert with these GPS beacons. So we pushed long and hard against that. And even though that technology is emerging, I would still push against it because um, your iPhone doesn't always work. The battery dies or when you've got your cane in one hand and your sports bag or your um, groceries in another, um, you don't have an extra hand free to be running your smartphone or if it's pouring rain out, et cetera, it goes on and on and on. So I think when TransLink puts in these GPS beacons, and I have no idea when that will be, um, that will be an enhancement, another tool that we can use, but it wasn't, at least in my perspective, the be all and the end all.
2: We know that you've tackled many accessibility projects with TransLink and coastal mountain bus company over the years. And I would consider Metro Vancouver to have a very accessible transit system. Can you give some examples of other projects you've worked on?
3: Sure. Um, As I said at the beginning, one of my primary focuses has been to um, ensure, or to the best of my ability, ensure that people who are blind or partially sighted have a very accessible and inclusive public transit system. And over the years, I stop and think about um, the installation of the tactile platform edge on SkyTrain. It's now become a TransLink standard. So when they built the Canada line, That included the tactile platform edge and uh, it will also be included in the extension from uh, King George station out to Langley Um, in 2008 we lobbied during 2006 2007 for the automated stop announcements. Um, And that was that was an interesting project, but uh, that eventually came to uh, fruition and introduction in 2008. One of the other services that I think gets underutilized, but um, it it does get used a fair bit by the blind community, is the VIP um, Mm -hmm. assistance um, on SkyTrain. And I would urge anybody with sight loss, if they're not familiar or comfortable when they enter a SkyTrain station, um, do call for that service. It's there, it's available. Um, It's efficient, although you may have to wait a few minutes for a SkyTrain or a Candleline attendant to attend, but they will come and escort you from the station entrance, uh, right up onto the train, and then they'll have somebody meet you on the other end if you ask them for that additional assistance. Um, So those are some of the the main ones with with, um, TransLink. Um, One of the first things um, we did when Access for Sight-Impaired Consumers started back in 1997 um, is we did a lot of work in the area of accessible pedestrian signals. Um, They were formerly called audible pedestrian signals. As you know, that's the cuckoo and the chirp um, at street crossings. Um, We have lobbied for... Uh, the introduction of wayfinding messages in those devices, so that um, what I would eventually like to see, and I'm sure the blind community would agree, is when you push the button, it will tell you uh, what street you're crossing at what intersection. So if I can use Vancouver as an example, you'd go up and press the button and it would tell you you're crossing Broadway at Granville. Um, And you know exactly where you are, um, Mm -hmm. or if you're facing the wrong direction, that type of thing. Um, The other thing that I was really pleased to get into place was descriptive narration um, at Famous Players movie theaters. Um, And of course, Famous Players was eventually bought out by Cineplex Entertainment. And I'm pretty sure i'm hard pressed to think of a theater now that's not equipped with the fidelio um descriptive narration system not all movies are described but those that are now allow um, those of us who are blind or partially sighted to go to those movies and enjoy it as much as our sighted companions Um, and one of the benefits to that descriptive narration service is it also included closed captioning for the deaf and hard of hearing. Um, That wasn't necessarily something that we had top of mind or lobbied for, but it was just part of the system and part of the service that's now offered. So that's a couple. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's more if I really stop and think about it. Oh, Sean. Yeah. I know you helped us with... um, (laughs) In fact, you were involved with our discussions with Elections BC.
1: Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, trying to make that whole voting process more accessible for yeah. voters who are blind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. ASIC and slash Rob <laughs> have done a lot to make our community more accessible, definitely. Um, I just wanted to ask if somebody does have a complaint or an issue, an accessibility issue, um, with transit specifically, or getting around the city. What, how, what should they do? Who do they contact? What is this user advisory committee? You know, how does that whole process work?
3: I would suggest they call Sean at 604. Uh, no, no, no! <laughs> no. no.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'll just refer them to you. Yeah. So, uh. yeah.
3: <laughs> no, um. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, the access transit users advisory committee in 2005 2006 TransLink management recognized that they needed to make their system more accessible to people with all forms of disabilities. And so they sat down and through a number of community workshops, they developed what's become known as the access transit strategy and. Part of that strategy was to form a a consumer advisory committee, which eventually became known as the Users uh, Advisory Committee. Um, They've been meeting now for 15 years. Yes, they started in 2007. Um, I was fortunate to participate in the development of the access transit strategy, um, which landed me a seat on the committee back in 2007 and i served as founding chair for four years Um, the role of the users advisory committee is just that it's not to advocate although it's very difficult not to cross that line our job really is to advise translink on policies procedures plans to look at them through a disability lens um, and to give them some advice as to Things they should maybe be giving more consideration to, or if they're going down the wrong path altogether. Um, the Access Transit Committee is made up of there's 20 seats on it, um, and it's made up of cross disabilities um, individuals with um, not only sensory disabilities, physical disabilities, cognitive, um, etc. And um, uh, we try. Um, to um, ensure that there is a broad representation based on region, uh, on culture, um, diversity, um, disability types, et cetera, et cetera. The members of the committee are actually appointed by the TransLink board. There is an application process that usually starts in September of each year um the applications are due in by roughly the middle of october Um, they get vetted by management and then presented to the transit board who eventually makes the appointments um, to to the committee for a three-year renewable term so you can serve up to six years in total Um, then you're required to take a one-year break and i actually just came from a uac meeting And we went around the room and everybody introduced themselves. And uh, I had to admit that was my 13th year. (laughs) I think I'm getting a little long in the tooth, but um, (laughs) anyhow, it's, uh, it's a great group of people, very diverse, very, uh, a lot of sort of disability experience comes to the table. And there's some great ideas that, that come out of that. So, um, as far as complaints are concerned, and I hope there's a minimum, but Uh, As far as complaints are concerned, there used to be an email address that you could write to, but um, they've discontinued that. You can register your complaints with the customer information staff um, by calling the customer information line 604-953-3333. But I would suggest you use that only if you don't have access to a computer. Uh, And the reason I say that is because you're going to um, pass on your complaint to an individual who really doesn't maybe share the emotion or the understanding of your disability. Um, They're very polite, they're very kind, they very understanding, but sometimes it's better to write out your complaint um, using your own words and, and so on and so forth. And you'll find that on the TransLink.ca website. And I'm sorry, I don't have the exact web page address. Um, but when you get on the TransLink website, there is a search engine there. And you could just put in customer relations. And it'll take you to the correct page with the form to file your complaint. Or, and this is really important, or your kudo, your compliment. Um you know, we're always very quick to complain. I don't think we take enough time to compliment a driver or uh, a SkyTrain attendant or somebody who really went out of their way to uh, to help us. So, Sean, I think it's a great question: where do I file complaints? But also keep in mind, where do I file my my commendation? Mm,
1: good point. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um. Okay. So in terms of, uh, I just, I have a personal little beef lately that some of the sky trains are not announcing when they open their door, where their destination is. Um, so for something like that, Is that And it's been going on for quite a while, for a number of months. And again, because I'm only taking transit maybe once or twice a week right now, it's not something I even think about between my, you know, I sort of forget about it by the time I get home and then I'm out again a week later and it happens again. So it's like something that's happening repeatedly. Is there a way to send an email to the UAC committee or... Or would there be a different process or would it be the same?
3: The process is the same. I mean, I could give you all kinds of shortcuts, but I I wouldn't be doing you a service if I did that. If I said, for example, send it to my email address, I got to be honest with you, I've got lots of other things. And the truth of the matter is when uh, a complaint of any nature, excuse me, gets logged through the TransLink website, it gets tracked and track very carefully. Um, and so if you were to go online, Sean, and fill in that form, it gets assigned a complaint number. It gets assigned to somebody for follow-up. And the more people that file their complaints through the official channels, the the more attention, the more spotlight gets uh, gets placed on it. And so, therefore, I'd, I'd strongly recommend you go to the website or, like I say, phone into customer information. Okay. Um, yeah, that, that, that's the best way. Now, a couple of things about filing a complaint that's really important. Um, and I'll get to your complaint in just a moment. But if you can, uh, if it's a SkyTrain issue, um, it's really important that you mention as much detail as you can. For example, I was on the Expo line traveling into Vancouver and it didn't announce the stop at Joyce Station or it didn't announce the stop at, um, you know, Granville Station, whatever. Uh, date and time is really important because uh, that helps them to track down exactly where the problem is initiating. That's especially important if you have a complaint about the stop announcements on the the public transit system. Um, Again, really important that you make note of the date, the approximate time, if uh, if you can do that. And many of your listeners will be interested to know that every coach out there, whether it's a shuttle or a public transit conventional coach, has a four digit um, actually a five-digit alphanumeric number. And that number is posted inside the bus, just above the dry uh, the windshield at the front. So it's basically above the, uh, the fare box. And if you can't see it, ask a passenger next to you if they could maybe help you with the number or take a photo uh, towards the front of the bus and capture that on your phone. Um But if you want to complain, for example, that the driver didn't have the stop announcements working, the coach number, the date, the time, and the route you were on is really helpful because then they can track down, uh, the, the offending driver and either determine whether it was a mechanical problem on the bus or whether the driver had simply turned the stop announcements down.
1: Thank you. That's very helpful.
2: Yeah, thank you. Um, so you shared with us a lot of very good um, information about what you have done and are currently doing um with transit. Um, but can you tell us if you know what your next big advocacy project is?
3: Uh <laughs> <laughs> actually I have I have three that we are working on not me we are working on right at the moment um the one of them is what the team is working on right now is a very deep dive into what's known as the bc retinal diseases program and this is a program that's funded by the ministry of health here in british columbia there is a sister program in Alberta that we're going to start looking into next month, and it relates to the uh, interocular injections of um, medications into the eye to treat uh, diabetic macular edema and age-related macular degeneration. So. Um, That's one of the projects we're working on and we're we're submitting a number of freedom of information requests to the Minister of Health and we're starting to get some information which we'll post to our website very shortly. Um, The other thing we're looking at right at the moment is making the municipal election process uh, more accessible to people who are blind, partially sighted or deafblind. Very similar to what Sean and I worked on. Um, and others with elections BC um, because we have a municipal election coming up in October of this year. And the third thing that we are looking at right now, and it's a pet peeve of mine, is if you look at any of the major news channels and the evening news, they have a tendency to flash the financial numbers up on the screen, along with what's known as a music bed in the background. And of course, it's totally useless to those of us who are blind or partially sighted. But I'm always very interested in uh, the value of the Canadian dollar at the close of business or whether the price of oil went up or down. And those numbers under the Accessible Canada Act should be accessible to us. So we'll be filing a complaint with the CRTC um to get these um major broadcasters uh, especially in the television medium to uh to make those numbers verbally available to us yeah. that'll keep me busy till the end of the week
0: <laughs> <laughs> if
1: somebody wanted to I don't know help out in some way with any of these projects is there or even just read more about what ASIC is doing how can they find you
3: A couple of ways, if people are really interested in helping us out and we could always use the help, um, they can write to us at info at asicbc.ca, and I'll spell that, that's info at A-S as in Sierra, I as in India, D as in, no C, sorry, (laughs) a s i c b c dot c a. Sean, I wear a wristband with my address on it because I can't can't always remember. Um, Or they could go to our website, um, www.asicbc.ca. We're just in the process of transitioning that website from a SharePoint platform to WordPress, but we are slowly bringing it up to date. and there's a lot of really good information on the homepage and some of the links associated with it.
1: Thank you, Rob. Thank you for all your work advocating over these many decades. I think I, I, can, I think I can speak on behalf of the blind community, just how appreciative we are of all the time and energy that you have put into so many projects that really have helped us all. So thank you for that. Yes,
2: thank you so much.
3: Yeah, you're welcome. And you know, I really enjoy doing what I'm doing, because it's not only for the community, I benefit from it too. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really great to hear how the independence and inclusion of people who are blind or partially sighted, um, what they're experiencing as a result of our work. So you're very welcome. Thank you.
1: And thanks for joining us today and sharing all this history. This is fantastic. You've been listening to Limitless, the Blind Beginnings podcast. If you have a question, a comment, a future topic request, please send us an email to limitless at blindbeginnings.ca. Please share our podcast with a friend, leave us a rating and join us next time.
0: This podcast has been brought to you by Blind Beginnings, an organization based in Vancouver, Canada, that supports children and youth who are blind or partially sighted along with their families. Music for this podcast is composed by Sean Bishop and Clement Chow, production and audio editing by Rob Minot. For more information about Blind Beginnings and the work it does to support children and youth who are blind and partially sighted along with their families, Visit us on the web at www.blindbeginnings.ca and also remember to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We thank you for joining us and we look forward to seeing you next time.